And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. All right. Well, Merry Christmas and thank you so much. What a blessing to see all these gifts. And thank you for your many prayers and thoughts and uh, kind wishes. And uh, it's such a blessing to be able to serve here with you. And I was really encouraged by yesterday. If you were out there, what a blessing. We had so many of our church family there at the Mirabella Apartments. And I want to give a special thank you to Laura Gabriel for all of her work that she put in. She's at work this morning. And uh, she's, she said, but I'll see you Tuesday night for the candlelight service. And uh, so looking forward to that. And also to Sylvia Palacios for all of her work in putting that together. And we must have had another 14 or 15 Folks, uh, adults from our church, plus teenagers and others out serving yesterday. We had, what, 37 children register, is that right? Plus parents and other folks, and, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful time. Thank you for serving, thank you for giving, and thank you for being a church that loves people and loves God enough to tell people about Jesus. And yesterday, a lot of boys and girls and moms and dads got to hear about the Lord, and uh, as we celebrated the birthday of Jesus and told the story of how Jesus came to earth to die for our sins. We're very thankful for that. There's many out sick today, and I want to think especially of Linda, who's in the hospital today. And uh, she is on the men, so she's on the positive end of things. But be praying for Linda Dalmaso as uh, she's in the hospital and still recovering from some things this week. 
As, and Larry, he's had a surgery earlier this week, so he's laid up for a little bit. Brad and I went by and visited him the other day, and uh, he's just, he just feels very cooped up. He's ready to get out. But uh, some of us are going to slide by this evening and sing some Christmas carols to him, as well as to a few other people in our church. And if you're able to be back tonight at 5, that's what we're going to do. We're going to split up in groups in our vehicles. If you can't get in and out easily, you can just drive and fellowship. But we're going to go over, sing at a few homes for a few folks in our church that can't get out this time of year. And then we're going to come right back here. And uh, Brother Joe's making hamburgers. That is something good I can say about it. I've been thinking for a while about what to say. He's going to make hamburgers tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're going to have some of his wonderful beans that he's making and uh, just a special Christmas celebration with our church family tonight. If you want to bring a game, maybe you have a, a board game you like to play or, or some kind of group game and you want to bring that, that'll be fine. And uh, the kids are all excited. There's no school tomorrow, so we thought we'd have a little Christmas party tonight. And so we'd love to have you join us. If you're able, it'll be at 5 o'clock tonight. And there'll be a few folks staying back here uh, doing the food and that type of thing. So again, if you're not up to traveling and singing and all that, just come for the fellowship tonight. Uh, but if you would like to come and be a blessing to some others who can't get out very well tonight, would be a great night to do that. And don't forget, Tuesday night, 7 o'clock right here, the candles and all that came in this week, so we're ready to go for that. We've got some special musicians that will be with us. Uh, Evelyn, who got married here a couple months ago, she lives in Mississippi. She's back, going to be back for Christmas Eve, and so she's going to be part of this. And, and an old classmate of mine, well, she's not old, but we were classmates a long time ago, uh, Elizabeth, uh, now green, is, was DeBlanc. Her parents are in our church, but uh, she and her family will be here, and she's going to help participate in the music. They live up in Kansas, so they're going to be down. So we're going to have some family and friends in and some others involved with that. It'll be special. won't be very long, short uh, service, but just a time to reflect and focus on why we're here and what this celebration, what this season is all about, and then we'll let you get back home to your Christmas evening plans and whatever you have to do and Christmas pajamas or last minute wrapping or whatever you have to do. But let's pause if, you, if we can and just focus on why we're even doing all this in the first place. And that'll be a blessing. Well, we're going to dismiss our boys and girls out to the junior church time now. And uh, we're going to miss the Tanners. They're heading out of town this afternoon, going to visit some family for Thanksgiving. So it's a blessing. They, he decided to come in, take care of 30 kids this morning, and then go on vacation. So he'll be ready for that today. Hannah's home with some sick ones today. We've got a lot of people in and out. That's all right. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. And I am so excited to be able to share this message with you this morning. We finished Nehemiah last week. And I'd been praying for a number of weeks about what to share on the Sunday right before Christmas. We've sung the Christmas songs, we've read the Christmas passages, and, and this week, early in the week, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, and my wife and I, we've been reading through different Bible um, devotionals and, and uh, different things at this time of year. One of the verses that we came across in our Bible reading this week was from Romans chapter 5. And the more I read this, the more I thought about it and meditated on the truth of this passage this is not maybe the traditional place where you'd go to hear your Christmas message from in the Bible. And yet, I, I really feel like this passage embodies what 
Christmas is really all about. You know, when you think of Christmas and, and all of the special times last Sunday night, the boys and girls put on a great production for us, didn't they? We had a, a full house. We had lots of boys and girls. They did so much work and did a tremendous job memorizing all those lines. They had all the costumes and all the props up on the stage and all of the songs that were sung. And it was all about Jesus and His coming to this earth. And we heard the angels and they said, glory to God in the, in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. We heard the shepherds as they went down to Bethlehem and they visited Mary and Joseph in the stable and, and they saw the baby Jesus as he was born. And you always have to feel for those children doing the program because for us being Mary and Joseph is very cute for them they're not sure they want to be Mary and Joseph because that means being married to somebody else and they're not sure that they want to be married and all those kind of things. And so, you know, they go through all those challenges to do it. So there's a lot that swirls through their minds as they put on that production. As we go to our houses and probably many of you are wrapping gifts and putting things together for your families. Maybe you're preparing a special meal. Maybe you're getting ready to go on a trip and go visit somebody. There's a lot that goes on at Christmas time. And sometimes we get very focused on the babe in a manger, and that's a beautiful sight and very pleasant thoughts to think about. And yet the wonderful thing of Christmas is not just that He came, it's why He came. And it's what He did when He came. It's why Jesus came to this earth. And when we think about it, it's not so much just making a fuss over a baby that was born, but rather thinking about why this baby was born and what He came to do and why He came to this earth. See, if, it, if Christmas was just about a baby, it, it would come and go and it would not be something that we celebrate every year. In fact, the birth of many children has very little impact on us unless that child is born into our family or to one of our close friends. But the reason that we celebrate Christmas every year is because of who this child was and what, for what purpose he came. And I want us to look at a passage of Scripture here in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. And as we look at this truth this morning, understand that as Paul the Apostle wrote this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he penned these words, this is not just a maybe simple Bible story with various characters participating in some sort of activity. Rather, he's laying out for us a case, almost as if a lawyer was standing in front of a court putting together a list of things to make careful proof of what he's trying to present. And so while this passage has a lot of detail to it and there's a logical progression that needs to be followed, I hope that you'll really engage your mind this morning and think together with me as we talk about this idea of why there is peace on earth, why there can be peace on earth, and maybe why there isn't right now. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to begin just by reading verse 1. Follow along with me if you will. Therefore, being justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1 begins with that word, therefore. And again, he's laying out this case that he's making in the book of Romans. And so when he says, therefore, he's referring back to the first several chapters of the book. He's referring to how in the first several chapters it talks about the fact that it is through faith that we have salvation. So as he says, therefore, being justified by faith. This word justified is a legal term. He's talking about justification or that which is declaring something to be righteous. It's as if you or I were to stand before a judge and the judge were to say, I'm, I'm, I'm acquitting you of all crimes. They have all been wiped away. You are justified in the eyes of the law. One preacher said it this way. Maybe this is easier for you to remember. Just as if I had never sinned. Justified. Just as if I had never sinned. And so through faith in Jesus Christ, God has made it just as if we have never sinned. In other words, He has washed all our sin away. He has put it away from Him, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, and He remembers it no more. He has justified us by faith. Notice, we have peace with God. This statement here, therefore, makes it very clear that at some point in our life, we did not have peace with God. Because if it takes justification through faith to have peace with God, therefore, there was a time when you and I, and literally everyone in this world, has not been or still is not at peace with God. He says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this peace with God is not based upon your merit or something that I have done. It's not based upon the fact that you're here at church this morning on December 22nd. Rather, our peace with God is through, it is based upon our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, every word in the Bible is important. And when he refers to Jesus with these three names, Lord Jesus Christ, he's doing it for a reason. Our Lord Jesus Christ, He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is our Sovereign. He is our Ruler. He is the One who is in charge. He is also Jesus. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. It's wonderful to have a Lord. It's wonderful to have a God who's in charge. It's even greater to have a God who saves. To be saved means that at some point we had to be lost. If you were never lost, how could you ever be saved? If you weren't ever lost, why would you ever need to be saved? But God sent Jesus, meaning Yahweh or the Lord, saves. And Christ. Christ is the word that means, the name that means the anointed one. The Messiah. Jesus Christ was the one promised by God throughout the ages, throughout the prophets who He had been born exactly how He was to be born. The children of Israel had been looking for Him for generations, for thousands of years. He was truly the Christ. In fact, when He walked on this earth, people asked Him, Art thou the Christ? Art thou the anointed one? Are you the one 
that was promised and Jesus declared that he was. So our peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we, of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore God has justified us. He's made it just as if we had never sinned. I wrote it this way, justification by faith in Jesus Christ gives us peace with God. There is no peace on earth if we do not have peace with God. There is no peace with God without justification through faith by Jesus Christ. You see, faith in the wrong person or place won't help you at all. Some people say, well, all you have to do is have faith. You can have faith in a lot of things. But if your faith isn't in the right place, your faith won't do you any good. You could have faith. You could have a lot of faith that after church I was going to take you to lunch. And yet you might be sorely disappointed. It doesn't matter how much faith. You, you could have got up this morning and said, I'm going to claim it. Pastor Will's going to take me to lunch today. And it still would not necessarily come to pass. I wish I could take you all to lunch today. Maybe sometime we'll have to do that. But uh, I'll have to see what's in these gifts to decide whether I can do that. And I didn't see Joe bring a gift, so I don't know. Oh, he's making the hamburgers tonight. Okay. Oh, there's a gift. Okay. I'll have to see what's in it, and then we'll decide about lunch. Okay. See, faith in the wrong place won't do you any good, will it? You're like, well, we definitely won't have faith in him anymore. See if we get him presents next year. But it's so important where our faith is. There are three things mentioned in the New Testament over and over as being extremely important in the life of every follower of God. These three things are mentioned together in many different passages of Scripture. And it's interesting to note that these three things also appear in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. We find these listed in several different verses here in this passage, and we'll get to those. But they are all grouped together in one specific verse of Scripture found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13. It says this, And now abideth these three, faith, hope, and charity, or love. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. I want you to notice as we read through this passage, as we study it together this morning in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, how faith, hope, and love all interact together. And without faith, hope, and love, we really wouldn't have anything to be excited about this Christmas. But it is because of faith, hope, and love that we have much to rejoice about. And through the faith, hope, and love that only comes from God, we can have peace this Christmas time. You see, first of all, our faith mentioned here, therefore being justified by faith. It's not by our works which we have done. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. The faith that we have in God gives us access or the ability then to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
So we see faith mentioned in verse 1. Notice verse 2. By whom also, who's the whom? Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith. I love that word access there. Think of it like a key. We even call them with the electronic cards. We often call them access cards, don't we? I remember when I was in college, I am older than some, but still young enough to have had electronic key cards in college. And I worked a couple different jobs on campus. And those jobs gave me the ability to have access to various buildings that other people didn't have access to. Let me tell you, there's a feeling of power with access, isn't there? I mean, when you walk up to a door and you buzz your wallet on the door and the door just unlocks for you and you walk in, that's a great feeling. And I remember for a couple of years as I worked on the usher crew at the school and we had the large auditorium there, about 7,000 people could fit in there and there were 85 of us on usher crew. Yes, I was a professional usher at one time. I got paid to be an usher. That was a pretty fun job. We saw all kinds of crazy things. People do crazy things. People bring crazy things. We had a guy bring a surfboard into a big event one time. And I said, why did you, you know, we couldn't allow big packages and things inside because for security and stuff like that. And I said, why'd you bring your surfboard? Well, I was giving it to my friend. And so it just seemed like it made sense. We were just going to meet here and I was going to give it to him after the event. I'm sorry, but guys in college, their brain isn't always functioning, isn't it? So we had a surfboard that day. We made him keep it outside. Of course, then he was concerned about what was going to happen to his surfboard. But I don't know how you're supposed to fit a surfboard into a seat when you're sitting there with all these other people around you. Anyway, a lot of interesting things happen. But because I worked there, I had access to the building through that card. Now, they had those little uh, buzzers next to the door where you would scan your card. And it was perfect for me because being tall, my wallet would go in my back pocket. I could just turn around, kind of back up to the door, and the door would open. The short guys were jumping, trying to do the same thing. Not everybody could be as cool as me, you know. It's the little things. It doesn't take much. And uh, so we would go up, we'd buzz our card, and we'd walk in. We had access. But after having that for a couple of years, there were some guys, and this always happens, at least in college, doesn't it? There were some guys that abused their access privileges. In other words, they got into the building at times when they shouldn't have been in the building, and they did things they shouldn't have been doing. So guess what happened? They restricted our access. They said, okay, well, you still have to get in the building, but you really don't need to be there 24 hours a day. So we're only going to let the access card work from, between this time and this time. And so from about 30 minutes to an hour before we were supposed to be there for an event until about 30 minutes to an hour afterward, the card would work. Otherwise, they had turned it off at the central command station, wherever that was. And there was, it was kind of frustrating because I remember guys sometimes, they'd, they'd come walking by and they'd have their girlfriend with them or something and they wanted to show off like, look, I have access to this building. And they'd go up and they'd, beep their card, and nothing would happen. It didn't help them much with their, uh, with their girlfriend. She didn't think he was as good as he thought he was. 
we're all legends in our own minds sometimes, aren't we? And uh, couldn't get in. Or sometimes you'd come a little bit early and, and you'd stand there and you'd just be beeping it over and over, waiting for the clock to turn so you could get in. It was helpful to have access so you could get in the building. Now we see this word here in verse 2 that we have access by faith. It is through God, through His Son Jesus Christ, that we now have access by faith. We have the ability to get to God. And notice what we have access with God. He says, into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We've already talked a little bit about faith. Now we see the second one here mentioned in verse 2, the word hope. Hope is looking forward to something. It's, it's thinking that something will come to pass. While we can also have faith in things that don't have the ability to do anything, we can also put our hope in things that will never come to pass. We can hope in something that doesn't last. You could be hoping for a special gift this year and not get it. You, you could be hoping to see a particular family member and it not happen. You could be hoping that something works out a certain way in your life and it not take place. There's a book, I think, titled this. It's a, a business book and it's called Hope is Not a Strategy. And while this would generally be true, in the case of your relationship with God, hope is absolutely the best strategy. You say, why is that true? Well, when your hope is in the one that never changes, when your hope is in the one that's the same yesterday, today, and forever, when your hope is in the one that has all power to do whatever He pleases, when your hope is in the one who is always good, who always tells the truth, always wins, and always keeps His promises, then hope in God is absolutely a wonderful thing. But hope, hope is that desire, that thought that this will come to pass. But the question can easily be asked then, but what if things get difficult? That sounds good, but again, hope is not a strategy. Paul, as he's laying out this case for us, he goes right into verses 3 and 4. As he begins to deal with that big what if, what if we've placed our hope, our faith in something and that something, God and Jesus Christ, doesn't fix all my problems. What if life is still hard? In fact, he's bringing up a very important point. Because some would have you believe that if you follow God, that your problems are over. That you'll never have any more struggle. You just need to have enough faith. The problem is that's a lot of pressure on you and me, and it's a pressure that's truly impossible for us to overcome. Because the reality is, the Bible speaks about the amount of faith that's necessary to move a mountain. It says it's just a faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. The question is not so much how much faith that we have, rather the question is, who is your faith in? The question is not that I hope enough that it comes to pass, but rather that my hope is in the right place. 
Paul details some of this out for us in verses 3 and 4. Notice, hope in God. Hope in God is good even in times of difficulty. He says here, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation. Tribulation, those are difficult things that come to pass. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So when difficulty comes in your life, it doesn't mean that your hope is in the wrong place. It just means that we can know, we can have confident assurance that tribulation works patience. It'll bring more patience into your life. And he continues on. He says, in patience, experience. And experience, hope. Hope comes right back to, even in difficult times, even when I have tribulation, I can know that that tribulation will help me to grow in patience as I keep my faith in God. As I continue to grow in my patience as I walk with God, patience will build experience into my life so that when I go through that difficult thing again, I will have the experience from the last time through. I will have patience to continue on, and that experience then brings I've noticed this as I continue to go, the years go by, year again, year again. You think, man, how do people keep going? How do they keep living? How do they keep dealing with all the stuff that happens to them? How do they go through sickness? How can they go in the hospital? How can they deal with the death of a loved one or a close companion? How can they deal with this? Well, tribulation works patience. And patience, experience, and experience hope. The, the people in here that maybe have lived a little longer than some of the other ones, if they've walked with God, they, their hope may be even stronger than yours and mine. Why? Because they've been through the tribulation. And that tribulation has built some patience into their life, which has given them some experience so that they can have a greater a walk with God is, is just that. It's a relationship. It's something that takes time. It's something that grows over time. Your hope in God, if you're walking with Him, ought to develop more and more over time the longer you walk with Him. Amen. That's why when a new believer first comes to Christ, it's so important that we really rally around them and encourage them and help them grow and, and teach them and walk them along because even something very small can get their head turned get their feet pointed a different direction. Because all of a sudden they feel like, wait, I, I thought this was all going to be good. No, tribulation will come. But the tribulation will bring patience. The patience will bring experience. And the experience bring hope. But he continues on. He's not done there. Look at verse 5. He says, And hope maketh not ashamed. In other words, if your hope is in God, you won't be ashamed. You won't have to apologize for it. God will never let you down. So this is the next big point. That is this, that hope is made sure when God's love is demonstrated. See, that brings us to the third word, faith, hope, and love. It is by faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified and have peace with God. Because we have peace with God and are justified by faith, we can have hope in the glory of the Lord. We can hope in God and trust that what He says will come to pass. And that hope in God is based upon God's love being demonstrated 
towards us. That's why 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, And now abideth these three, faith, hope, love, faith, hope, charity, but the greatest of these is charity. Why is it the greatest? Well, we'll see that in verses 5 through 8. I'm going to read verse 5 out loud. Listen to it, please. It says, And hope maketh not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Verses 5 through 8, I, I really see two different ways that God's love is being demonstrated to us. One is a subjective way, and one is a more objective way. The subjective one is mentioned in verse 5. Because the love of God is spread in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given to us at the moment of salvation. This passage helps to support that idea that the Holy Spirit is not received at some later date, but rather when we come to Christ because it's paired together right here with justification. We've been justified by faith. Then we have peace with God because we have peace with God. We can have hope in God and our hope in God is based upon God's love for us that's demonstrated as the Holy Spirit is given to us. The more we learn to walk in the Spirit and experience the Spirit's leading in our lives, the more we feel God's love through the direction of the Holy Spirit. He describes it this way, the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. In other words, He's pouring His love out upon us by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. In some places in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is referred to as an earnest payment or like a down payment. God's saying, you want to know that you're saved? You want to know that you have eternal life? One of the ways you know it is by the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. you say, how do I know the Holy Spirit's inside of me? Well, first of all, because God says He is. But as you learn to live in the reality of knowing that the Holy Spirit is in your life, it's amazing how you begin to sense the Holy Spirit's direction in your life. I would imagine those who have had a walk with God longer than others probably could explain this better than someone who has just newly come to Christ. But for those of you who have walked with God for some time, wouldn't you say that as you walk with Him, as you get to know Him better, as you understand His Word, as you walk in obedience... More and more over time, you are able to sense the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. You ever talk to an older Christian who says, you know, I was reading in my Bible today and it was like God just told me this is what I should do. And you say, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. How did that happen? Well, God speaks to us through His Word as the Holy Spirit guides our hearts. So you believe things like that? Yeah, because that's what the Bible teaches. The Holy Spirit is inside of us, dwelling in each of us as a believer. And as we read God's Word, the Holy Spirit can convict us. He can point out things in our hearts that are wrong. That's why as a believer, as you read God's Word, read it with an open heart to what God has to say to you. Because God may have something to convict you about, something to point out in your life. Say, this needs to change. When you sense that as you're reading God's Word, as you hear a message... That's the Holy Spirit in your heart. Learn to listen and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. 
We could have a whole message, a series of messages on the Holy Spirit, but just very quickly, the Bible speaks about things like it says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. It talks about how we are to listen to the Holy Spirit, how we are to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This is done as we learn to become in tune to what God is saying through His Word. This isn't some spooky thing, but rather as we read God's Word, as we hear God's Word preached, as we spend time in prayer with God, God will bring things to your mind. God will impress things upon your heart. I've had this happen many times. I've been praying about somebody in our church. And I'll think, you know, I probably should give them a call and see how they're doing. Call them. Say, I can't believe you just called me right now. You don't think the Holy Spirit does things like that? I, he absolutely does. Amen. See, the Holy Spirit is a subjective means by which God demonstrates His love towards us. And what I mean by subjective, while we all have the Holy Spirit, if we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior... Those who are more in tune with His leading in our life are more able to sense God's love through the Holy Spirit in your life. We all have access to the same Holy Spirit if we're saved. But the greater your relationship grows with God, the more in tune you are to His Holy Spirit at work in your heart. But there may be even those who say, well, I just, I don't sense this. I don't feel this. And you may go through times in your life where you don't. I'm just struggling with something. I'm not sensing the Holy Spirit's leading in my heart like I once did. Did that mean that God stopped loving me? Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? I just, things have been a wreck. I, I'm not sensing God's leading in my life. I don't feel as close to God as I used to. We could fill in the blank with all kinds of statements like that, couldn't we? And that's why God doesn't leave us alone with just this statement of the only way that He's demonstrated His love toward us is by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He gives us the next several verses, verses 6 through 8, that really speak to God's objective, demonstrative way that He showed His love toward us. Notice verse 6. For when we were yet without Strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see two ways that He's demonstrated His love toward us. The first is through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The second is through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sin. God sent Jesus to die for us to demonstrate His love for us. But there's some great detail in verses 6 through 8 that I don't want to skip over. You can't see this as well in your English Bible. But I went back and I looked it up. This was very interesting. If you know how to look up things in a Greek New Testament, verse 6 is very interesting. It's a good translation that we have, but translating from one language to another, sometimes word order is not the same. If you speak Spanish, you know what I mean by that. Sometimes you put things in a certain order in a Spanish sentence, 
that you would not put in the same order in the same sentence in English. So if you were to translate word for word, it wouldn't make sense if you were doing it in the same order as the different language. But the New Testament was originally inspired and written down in Greek, and it's very interesting in verse number 6, because we read, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, a little English lesson for you today. What is the subject of the sentence in verse 6? Who or what is the subject? Anybody? All right, we've got a little question here. Some people are failing the English test. Others are passing right now. All right, is it we or is it Christ? Now, not to pick on anybody, but notice the first phrase. If you think it was we, it's in the part of the sentence that says, for when we were yet without strength. That's called a prepositional phrase. And unless the whole prepositional phrase is your subject, your subject's not going to be found there. The subject is Christ. That's the who or the what is doing the action. That's how you know what the subject is. So what's the verb? What's the action? Died. Christ died. Say, why are you pointing this out? Well, it's very interesting because in the Greek, there's two little words that basically mean like yet and for that are in the first order in the Greek, and then the very next word is Christ. Then all the rest of that verse is in the middle of it, and then the very last word of the verse in the Greek is died. You say, why did they do it that way? Well, do you know how in different languages word order can be used for specific types of emphasis? You can emphasize things differently by how you say it, by the order that you put things in. You know, in Spanish, for example, your adjectives and your verbs and your nouns all agree in gender and in, in number, right? And, and, and that doesn't always work the same in English, quite the same. But in Greek, when they put the subject at the beginning and the verb at the end, they're trying to emphasize it's like they're putting an exclamation point on the verse, Christ died! It's almost interesting to think about this verse if you were to read it in that order. Now, I realize it's a little jumbled because, again, in the English, it's not going to make quite as much sense. But follow me, if you will. Verse 6, think of it. Christ, for when we were yet without strength in due time for the ungodly, died. It's really the idea of this verse. He's highlighting this. It's not taking away from how it's translated in our English Bible, but rather adding to its emphasis Christ died. There are people today that don't think that that matters. He's highlighting it as he's saying, this is how we know that God loves us, that His own Son, His only begotten Son, died. Notice at what time He came. I said it this way, Jesus came at the right time. It says in verse 6, in due time. It's speaking about a specific time that Christ came. Jesus came at the right time. The Bible speaks about this time, this due time, this fullness of time over and over. Galatians 4 says it this way, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of 
of sons in the fullness of time, he says it. So why is this time so important? Well, notice the significance of the culture in the day in which Jesus came. What was going on in the culture of the world at that point? Well, we know that the Roman civilization had brought peace. Now they were, they had everybody enslaved, but there was relative peace. There wasn't a lot of wars going on during this time. They brought peace and they also brought a great system of roads that provided good transportation around the empire. But you know what the highway system did in the Roman Empire besides just be a good mode of transportation? It also was a means by which the gospel could be carried all over the empire. God sent Christ at the exact right time in history because of what was going on culturally with the Romans. Also, the Greeks, the Grecian civilization had provided a language that was spoken throughout the world. While there were varieties of languages, Hebrew, for example, being spoken in that particular nation or some other language in another place, the trade language of the day was Greek. They had united the world with a language that could be spoken. And it isn't it interesting then that our New Testament predominantly was written in Greek so that people everywhere in the world could read it. That was a very unique time in history, in due time. It was culturally the right time also because the Jews had, as they had been scattered around, they had proclaimed monotheism, belief in one God, and the messianic hope in the synagogues of the Mediterranean world. So there were synagogues scattered all around the, the, the Roman Empire at that point, the Mediterranean world anyway. And in those synagogues, while they weren't proclaiming Jesus when He came, they were proclaiming a hope that the Messiah would come. And if you read your New Testament, you'll know it's to those same synagogues that Paul the Apostle and other early evangelists and missionaries went to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a unique time in history. Culturally, it was unique. It was also significant because of the prophecies surrounding His birth. In the Old Testament, in the book of Micah, God had promised that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And if you read Luke 2, as Freddie did this morning, how did Jesus get to Bethlehem? Well, with Mary and Joseph, but I thought they lived in Nazareth. So how did they make the trek all the way to Bethlehem? Well, it just so happened in the fullness of time that God used a Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, to proclaim that a, a tax or a census be made that everybody had to go back to their place of origin where their family was from so that they could be counted. God got Jesus all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem so He could bo be born in exactly the right place, just like Micah said. Also in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Bible says that he would be born of a virgin. It says it this way, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. 
Matthew 1.18 says it this way. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when his, his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. And the Bible is very clear on this next phrase. Before they came together. They were engaged to be married. They weren't together yet. They hadn't been together. She was found with child of the Holy Ghost. See, the time was right culturally. The time was right prophetically. But I'd like to point out another piece of that time from Romans chapter 5 of why that time was so significant. The time was right culturally, prophetically, but the time was also right because of the need of those that he died for. Notice, if you will, back in verse 6, the first part of the verse says, For when we were yet without strength. There's two ideas here of time. One is the time that Jesus came. There's also the time that we were yet without strength. In other words, we had no ability to save ourselves. We had no strength. You say, well, when is that? Well, it's always been since the Garden of Eden. We've been without strength. We've been without the ability to get to God on our own. We couldn't climb over that big giant wall, so to speak, that was between us and God's holiness. God was up here, and we were down here, and no amount of goodness could cause us to get up to God. The Bible says it this way over in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. doesn't matter how tall you are. doesn't matter how good you are. doesn't matter how many wonderful things you've done. doesn't matter how nice you are on Christmas, even though you're all very nice people. We've still fallen short. So he says here, For when we were yet without strength. So there are those who were without strength. And then he says at the end of verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, be very careful to not divide those two. Some would like to say, yeah, there are those without strength. And then there are those that are ungodly. And that's two separate groups. Nope. Again, I'd take you back to the Greek. Because we and ungodly is talking about the same people. So those of you who say, well, I'm a really good person. I just am sometimes a little bit weak. Nope, you're ungodly too. <laughs> and so am I. Our problem is a sin problem. Sometimes we try to blame it on, well, I was just having a weak moment. No, you're having an ungodly moment. And you're weak because you're ungodly. And so am I. That's why we sin, because we are sinners. That's what sinners do. And that's why Jesus had to come. For when we were yet without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He carries this idea on, though, in verse number 7, as he speaks about the right people that He came. He came for those that needed Him, those that were weak, those that were ungodly. And He came, it says in verse 7, it's expanding on this. It says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Very rarely will somebody die for somebody who's righteous. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. Now, if you're a Bible student, you might notice it's talking about a righteous 
person and a good person. What's the difference between those? Well, if you look at some cross-references and other passages, it would seem to give this idea that those who were righteous were kind of like the Pharisees, those who were very careful to keep the law. They were righteous. And he's making the point, not many people would die for a Pharisee because they're righteous. He said, but maybe... Right? That's the idea here. Yet, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. For those who aren't just righteous outwardly, but they truly are nice people, good people. There might be somebody that would die for somebody like that. But again, he's pointing out, not many would do that. And again, taking it back to verse 6, he's not calling you and me righteous, and he's not calling you and me good. He's calling us weak and ungodly. His point is, even for those who really think they're doing a great job and they're righteous, those who say, well, I'm not just righteous, I'm good. He's saying, well, somebody might die for you. But then he brings us back. He's really bringing the weight on to verse number 8 because he says, but God commendeth his love toward us. doesn't matter whether you thought you were righteous or whether you were good or anything else. God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it doesn't matter whether you thought you were righteous, doesn't matter whether you thought you were good, the reality is we're all ungodly, we're all sinners, and Christ died for us. John 15, 13, Jesus said this, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus died for those that no one else would die for. Some might die for righteous. There would be a few, perhaps, that would die for a good person. But Jesus died for those that nobody else would die for. 1 John 4.16 says this, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Faith, hope, love. Because of God's love towards us, that he demonstrated to us on the cross, we can have hope that what he says will come to pass. Because we have faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because of that, God has justified us. So your problem this morning is not that you need more faith, that you need more hope, that you need to just love other people better. What you need this morning is Jesus. And if you experience the love of Christ in your life, you can then have the hope in the glory of God. You can then know that your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved, you're justified because of what Christ did for you. Back to verse 5, Christ died. But as of course we know, He didn't stay dead. He rose again. And he's seated, the Bible says, at the right hand of the Father, where he ever maketh intercession for us. Jesus came in the right time. 
Jesus came for the right people. That's us. And He came for the right reason. He was obedient to God the Father. God commendeth His love toward us. He sent Jesus. And He was motivated by His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm just going to read a few other passages of Scripture that spoke to my heart as I was studying this week. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Or 1 John 3, verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God. Here's how we know that God loves us. Because He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay our lives, down our lives for the brethren. Or Romans 8, 32, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Ephesians 5, 2, And walk in love as Christ hath loved us, and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Or Galatians 2, 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peace on earth. How are we ever going to have peace on earth? Well, some would say, well, when the wars stop, people stop fighting. If everybody would just get along and stop arguing. What's wrong with everybody? Romans 5 is very clear. We're weak and we're ungodly. We're sinners. There will be no peace on earth until there is peace with God. It's only through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. I hope that this message burns deep into your heart and life. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior... Know that your peace with God doesn't come through what you have done, but what Christ has done on your behalf. And that peace with God comes as we experience and as we remember and as we focus on the love of God being demonstrated to us through Jesus Christ, our Son, which gives us great hope in God because we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. Where's your faith this morning? If you're struggling with peace in your own heart, if you're struggling with the lack of peace in our world, as I talked to a couple guys at the donut shop this morning, they said, oh, did you see this? You know, talking about all the stuff that's been going on at the national level, and I'm, it's all over the news, and there's nothing but that, it seems like. It can almost be discouraging, like, don't they know this is Christmas? Can't we talk about something better? No, they can't because they don't have peace. Amen. And they don't have peace because they don't truly know God. So, well, they claim to know God. You and I may claim to know God too, but you'll be able to tell somebody that has peace in their heart. 
by what they say, by what they do, by how they live. And I'm very concerned as Christians that we not just claim the name of Christ, but that we've, if we've experienced the peace with God that comes through Jesus Christ, that it ought to change how we act. It ought to change how we spend our time. It ought to change how we interact with those around us. It ought to change what we say and what we think about and what we do. So many people today name the name of Christ, but it's done nothing to change their life. And I can't judge their heart. I don't know what's inside of them. But I would say their fruit is not the fruit of one that's experienced peace with God. And I would just ask you to examine your own heart this morning. If you've truly experienced peace with God, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and if there's not real fruit being demonstrated to others, then examine your life in light of God's Word and say, God, what do I need to change? God, how can I be right with you? God, I want to be at peace with you today. Because God has done it all for us through Jesus Christ, His Son. Faith, hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. I hope you have peace. If you don't, this morning as we wrap up our service, I'm going to bow my head and pray. The piano is going to play. And take some time in your heart right now. You can talk to God. He wants to hear you. You can pray and confess your sin to God. That just means telling God that you're sorry for your sin. Asking God to forgive you of your sin. We are justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through this we have peace with God. If you know Christ as your Savior, and that's probably most of us here this morning, then what or how are you living to demonstrate that peace of God, that relationship that you have with God to this world. Thankful for many that did that yesterday. People could have been doing other things. But many came out and gave of their time, gave of their resources to minister to kids that sometimes get passed over and looked over by our society. A lot of people, I think, want to pretend that they have charity in their heart. Here, take my money, go over there. But folks, I would encourage you, let's not even let what happened yesterday just be a one-time thing. Those boys and girls have names. They have hopes, they have dreams. And guess what? They have a Savior, Jesus Christ who died for them just as much as He died for you and for me. And God has a plan for their life just like He has a plan for your life. None of us is any better than any of them. None of them is any better than any of us. We're all weak. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior, Jesus Christ. And let that motivate us as we see the people around us, not as people that just get in our way so that we can't get accomplished what we need to get done, but rather as opportunities that God brings across our path to minister to somebody else. Whether it's a neighbor, a family member, a coworker, somebody down in the jail, those guys need the Lord, don't they? 
People want to just lock those guys up and throw away the key and forget about them. That's what society would like to do with them. People that are living out on the street somewhere, people say, what's wrong with those people? Get out of my way. They have the same problem that you and I have. They're weak. They're ungodly. They're sinners. But the same truth that hopefully has resonated in your heart this morning of the love of God is the same truth that will change their life too. And it's changed some of your lives to become who you are today. And praise the Lord for that. But let us not get so comfortable where we're at and say, well, I've got it, I'm good. If everybody else would just be like me, the world would be a better place. Oh, that's so foolish, isn't it? Because the truth is, if everybody was like you, the world wouldn't be a better place. The only way the world's going to be a better place is if more people become like Jesus. You don't need more of me. You need more of Jesus. You don't need more of you. You need more of Jesus. Let's focus on Him this season. In the midst of everything else, find somebody that you can share the love of Christ with. Find somebody that you can encourage. Find somebody that you can... Give a gift to. There are people sick. There are people hurting. There are people who've lost loved ones. Heard of somebody else today. They lost their, their spouse this year, and this is their first Christmas to go through without their spouse. So that'll be a hard time. There are those in our church who are missing their loved ones. There are those who are missing something that they lost, something that they could have had. And as we celebrate, let's make sure we're celebrating Jesus and not just ourselves. Sometimes in our society today, Christmas can be more of a celebration of me. Look at all the things I'm buying for everybody. Look at all the things that my family members are getting. Look, look at how great we have it. Rather, let's make sure we're celebrating the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes and take some time to reflect now as the piano plays? If God's worked in your heart this morning and you need to trust Him as Savior, I'd love to visit with you, love to answer any questions that you have or find somebody who can take the Word of God and show you how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If there's anybody like that this morning, I'd love to pray for you. Everybody's head's bowed and eyes are closed. I'm the only one looking around, but if you'd slip your hand up, I'd love to pray for you this morning. Say, Pastor, please pray for me. I don't have that peace that you talked about, but I'd like to know that peace. I won't call you out. I won't put you on the spot. I'd just like to pray for you this morning. Anybody like that? Thank you. Maybe you're here this morning and would say, Pastor, I, I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. Praise the Lord. But would you pray for me this week that I would be able to share that message with somebody else, share the good news of Jesus Christ? Could I pray for you? I'd like to pray for each person in our church that would raise their hand and say, Pastor, I want to share the gospel with somebody this week. Would you pray for me that I would do that? Thank you. Many hands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these hands. You've seen them, but more importantly, you see our hearts. I pray for each one that you'd lead us to people that need the gospel or we come into contact with them all the time. Help us to be not so busy about our own things that we're too busy to do our Heavenly Father's business. 
We thank you for Jesus Christ and his love to us. We thank you for sending him to die on the cross for our sin. We thank you for your great love that you demonstrated to us so that we can experience the true faith in God that brings great hope of what you will do because of your great love that you demonstrated to us. Help us to show that same love to others. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.